This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Esports is a good aberration. We're still moving forward. We're part of something much bigger than sport right now. The health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. Every week at this time, plus Mondays and Wednesdays, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. We have a jam-packed show for you today. Coming up, we're breaking down the business of horse racing with Churchill Down CEO Bill Carstenge. Well, I think we're going in a wormhole into the head of Michael Barr. This is what he dreams about this week, the Kentucky Derby. Really excited for that conversation. Plus, we're going to hear some of my interview with Endeavor CEO Ari Emanuel. He took his company public this week, and the market seems to like it. Uh, This was an IPO that has been long in the making. We're going to talk about UFC and a lot of his sports holdings and how we're going to be consuming sports going forward. That's straight ahead on the Bloomberg Business of Sports show. But first, guys, let's talk about some of the things that are going on in the business world and the business of sports. You know, one of the things that I did talk to Ari Emanuel about is how people are consuming. And guess what? They're still watching TV for sports in many ways. And a reminder of that, uh, Lynchy, hockey doing a new broadcast deal. And not surprisingly, there's TV and a little bit of streaming mixed in there. Uh, What'd you make of it? Well, I think the big loser is NBC, who's had hockey for the last 16 years and done a very credible job for the league and exposing it to uh, different areas of the country. But now this new deal... uh, with ESPN is going to split with Turner Sports. Uh, ESPN will have four Stanley Cup finals. TNT or TBS will have three of them over seven years. But they also uh, have a different. There's a lot of platforms here, and there's a lot going on. Remember, TNT has Major League Baseball. They have the NBA. They got the NCAA tournament. But they have a deal now with HBO Max in which they could be streaming some of the National Hockey League games, much like the package that ESPN has. So I guess the ultimate winner is the hockey fan. There's more platforms to watch uh, National Hockey League games, and, and they'll be broadcast all over the place. Yeah, I mean, I am fascinated by this shift to streaming. It feels like the future. We know that's how people are are consuming it, Michael Barr. I mean, I'm not sure that that is universal in many ways, but hockey does have an issue where it needs to get a more diverse set of fans. It needs to get a younger group of fans. And so you got to go to where they're watching. That is where everybody's going. They're going to the streaming services. In fact, if a Television, if all the television makers want to make some money, put that app on your TV automatically. And I bet you people are like, oh, well, wait, this has the uh, the streaming app that I want on it. Right. So I'll just go ahead and buy it. Well, I mean, I will tell you that buying a TV these days uh, is an interesting process because so much of the stuff does come uh, preloaded, and that is how that's how we're going to be watching all this stuff. And I watched March Madness through all those apps and didn't feel like I, I missed uh, missed much in in that process. So the world is changing. Let you another story that I found. 
fascinating is the MLB expansion fees could be $2.2 billion, meaning that's what you're going to have to pay Major League Baseball if you want to own one of these expansion teams. This came in a discussion uh, with our friends over at Sportico by the MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred. Now, there are no expansion plans right now, but which actually begs the question, should we be expanding baseball? Not to get too existential around it, lynching. I don't think we should because I think that it, it, it's a watered-down product right now, and people are not watching it. And I think that the more quality you have and the higher level of, of play and talent will draw more fans. But they're looking at places like Charlotte, Vegas, Montreal, Nashville, Portland, Oregon, Vancouver. If I had to pick one of those cities right there, I'd pick Vegas because yeah. it's working. It's going to work for the Raiders. It's obviously working for the Golden Knights in hockey. $2.2 billion will be the price tag. Uh, the last time baseball expanded was 1998, and the entry fee for Arizona and Tampa Bay was $130 million. I mean, it does tell you that if this is the fee, if this is what they think they can get, Michael Barr, there is still a lot of value in baseball. And it's a reminder that sports franchises, for the moment, and, and we see nothing to really contradict this, with very rare exceptions, are an appreciating asset. No one is losing money buying sports teams. They will get the $2.2 billion expansion fee. I want to go something that uh, Lynchy said. If Las Vegas, say, for instance, that pops up and they get a team, they're going to have to build it in a dome. Because yeah. in the daytime it's two thousand degrees. Yeah. I mean they can't play in that, <laughs> and it, and or all the games are going to have to be played at night. But I could see Las Vegas being in play with this. Yeah, it's it's interesting too. One of the things that Commissioner Manfred said was that, uh, or he has said, is that Major League Baseball will not consider expansion until the A's out in Oakland and the Rays yeah. down in Tampa Bay get new ballparks. There is one that has been proposed for downtown Oakland, and what's interesting is the Rays have said they'll pursue splitting season between Tampa and Montreal starting in 2028. Now, that's a few years down the road because their lease is expiring at Tropicana Field uh, there in the Titletown area. I don't know. Maybe Tom Brady's going to have something to say about that lynching. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, 2028 is a long time away for to, to start splitting your time. Uh, but, you know, those those long-ago Expos fans, they want baseball back in, in, in Montreal, <laughs> I guess. Uh, anything else that jumped out at you for the week, lynching? This regional sports, uh, yeah. Sinclair owes regional sports networks uh, nearly $2 billion for make goods, for fewer eyeballs. And this is, you know, gets back to this thing we talk about all the time, people cutting the cord and just not watching on, on regional sports networks or, or cable TV. This is going to be an ongoing discussion and a problem, I think, for these regional sports networks uh, go, going forward. Well, and along those lines, I mean, there was also some news out of London from BT yeah. Group, you know, mm -hmm. saying that they may be selling uh, and they are in talks to sell potentially all of their broadcast division when it comes to sports, BT Sport. And what caught my eye is that two of the three bidders that are named in this Bloomberg story from this week are 
streamers. Uh, one is Amazon, which we know is part of the, we've talked about this, it was part of the group buying the NFL broadcast rights. Uh, Disney is another. I mean, they obviously have a streaming service, but they also own you know a, a little network called ABC. But DAZN, uh, it, which of course is run by John Skipper, former skipper of ESPN, uh, I am fascinated by that because DAZN has been a little bit of a sleeper here, Lynchy, in that you know they've really made their bones on boxing. It's very globally minded, but if they were to you know get something that really gave them a nice foothold into some of the more popular or mainstream, as it were, sports, that could be a big move up for them. BT Sport has the rights to the Premier and the Champions League right now, and we know how lucrative those television deals are. This is amazing. Rights fees keep going up, and as you said, uh, price tags for franchises keep going up. Sports is making money. Well, the rest of the world is trying to figure out how to make money. I mean, it's interesting just reading this story on on the Bloomberg, some nice reporting by Thomas Seal, that the division inside BT, quote, carries zero value in the sum of the parts equity valuation. And so this is really about shedding a non-core asset, which to your point, Lynchy, I mean, this is really me sort of geeking out from a business perspective, but, and, you know, you can't take the guy out of Bloomberg. It is, you know, it's a situation where it does have a tremendous amount of value outside of its existing home. So uh, eager to see what happens there. Coming up on the show, we're going to talk about the business of horse racing and so much more down in Louisville. The Triple Crown kicks off this weekend. Bill Karstangen is going to join us. He's the CEO of Churchill Downs. Of course, that is the home of the Kentucky Derby. But first, I want to play a part of the interview that I did earlier this week with Ari Emanuel. You know him as arguably the most famous agent in the modern world, but he's now something of a media mogul. His company, Endeavor, went public on the New York Stock Exchange this week after a little bit of a windy road getting there. And we started by talking about something that happened this week right here in New York, which is that the mayor said the city's going to be open in July. And certainly that's good for business. Well, I would say to you, we're different from most people because we're global. Where we sit on the Taste Festival series in London, we're at 75 percent capacity, but we've had to add more days because of the demand. Uh, on our a festival from on location that we have a business with the NFL. We had a concert in the first quarter of 22, sold out in less than 90 minutes, and we had to add an extra weekend. When we put our UFC fights, the three in a row, they sold out immediately. We had our biggest packages for the Super Bowl coming up in, in Los Angeles for on location. The 10 biggest tickets we've ever sold, sold out. The movie theater business, we are in all those areas. So from our perspective, you know, you can't, I, you, the good thing about the company is you can't, we're, you can't position us in one area. And I would say to you, during COVID, and that's what was the benefit of us during COVID, we did 80% of our EBITDA during COVID. The UFC, without audiences, which is a big player for us, and commercial pay-per-views, we beat our numbers by 10%. So we are, um, I think, the best position for where the world's going and distribution at all forms. And so talk to me more about that UFC experience, and, and we can yes. talk more about sort of the structure of the deal in a second, but the learnings from that, because some of that has got to stick, I would imagine, in terms of how people consume it and therefore how you produce it. Right. You understand content right. better than anyone. How does it change what you do going forward? Well, here's what I would say to you is, you know, in, we have an incredible partnership 
with uh, Disney and ESPN. They've been incredible partners. And we, we have kind of figured out, we have a direct-to-consumer business on FightPass. It's a global product. Um, we, we do digital, you know, we have a great deal with TikTok um, that they've given to our sport. We're doing NFTs right now with Dappler Labs. We were one of the first investors in Dappler Labs about two years ago. We'll be the second sport after the NBA. So we have looked at the world and kind of how our thesis were distribution is a commodity and how we distribute things and make things aware. Um, and so we've used all of our knowledge to do that. And then we bring it back to the company and we use it for clients in all forms, whether that be a Wimbledon client, a movie star, a movie, et cetera. So that's how we, we, we approach the business. We use other, all the elements that we have access to globally and we kind of utilize that throughout the company. You know, this whole notion of ownership of, of content and right. ownership of businesses, I feel like you've been talking about that for some time. The world has certainly caught up in, in, in that regard and we, we talk about it every time, all the time. Well, we talk, you know, we started the business based on George Gilder. You know, right. In his book, Life After Television, he talks about you know, um, there's going to be infinite distribution and content's going to be more, more important than anything, and anything. And that's what we built the business on, that thesis. And kind of, we're in every vertical of where the entertainment business is going. We're in, we're in fashion. We're in food with the Taste Fellows. We're in art with Freeze Art Fair. Uh, we're in sports. We're in music. We're in events because it's an experience economy. So we have used that thesis from 26 years ago and kept on expanding on it. And the world has kind of expanded its distribution platforms. How we used to define content to today's how we used to, de to define content is completely different, and we're positioned for all of it. And that was just part of my interview with Ari Emanuel this week, his firm Endeavor going public on the New York Stock Exchange. You can check out that full interview at Bloomberg.com slash QuickTake. All right, so guys, this deal with the UFC I find to be fascinating, Lynchy, because you know, this was a scrappy Dana White-led, you know, literally just fighting league that has been created from the ground up. And now it is going to be fully owned by Endeavor. And it is arguably one of the single most successful businesses to come out of the pandemic. It is right now the number three sport on the planet behind soccer or football and basketball. And for anybody that doesn't think that this stuff is real and it's staying around for a long, long time, it is here. And now Endeavor owns 100% of UFC. So, Michael Barr, you know, it's it's global, uh, which is important. Uh, it was easily consumed during the pandemic. It is wildly popular, as Lynchy says. You know, I think back to our conversation, just to bring up a competitor to the UFC, with the Professional Fighters League that we had uh, just a couple weeks ago. I have to say I'm amazed at the resilience and the growth that is there in that sport. We were talking about this off air, and when we had that interview with uh, Stephanie McMahon, my son, who is my oldest son, when I mentioned that we're going to talk to Stephanie McMahon, he's like, who, what, where, what time, what is yeah. going on, what's happening here? And it, it, it shows you the popularity of sports like that, like with the UFC. And that's something that, you know, it 
get with the program, folks, because uh, that's for the younger crowd. That's what's happening. It also struck me, Lynchy, in, in talking to Ari about how sports have changed because that's not their only uh, sporting asset that they own. And they work with a lot of athletes and, and entertainers. This whole notion of athletes and entertainers taking a larger ownership stake in the things that they're involved in. They're not just endorsing anymore. We talk about that a lot on this program. Uh I do also think that there are some interesting questions to be asked, and Ari answered them, maybe not surprisingly with enthusiasm about people getting back uh, back out there and, and back into arenas. What do you make of that? I mean, you're a longtime sports fan. You're there in one of, I you know, fully admit, one of the greatest sports <laughs> cities in the world, blah, 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 blah. Um, but, you know, diehard fans who want to go to Fenway, who, you know, want to go to, to Gillette Stadium – Nobody really knows the future, but Ari is really predicting a massive snapback, people really wanting to get out, which has to be good for the business of sports. Well, every state is different. For instance, here in Massachusetts, it's currently at 12%, but it's going to go to 20 25% uh, very, very shortly as we inch back. Now, the UFC last weekend was down in Jacksonville, and they had 15,000 people. And they, they and it was slammed together. No social distancing. Very few people wearing masks. They brought in over three million dollars at the gate. Tom Brady was sitting there uh, ringside. Tim Tebow was sitting there ringside. Um, you remember UFC was the, the first sport that was up and running after yeah. the pandemic last year. And they basically just said, you know what, we're going, rain or shine. Uh, we're going to find a place that wants us and what's going to let us go. And they started in Florida. And they've been flourishing. Um, they, they had a tough, a tough year last year, but they came flying out of the gate. People want to be back at sporting events. Uh, they want to be. I, New York has just increased their capacity to, I think, 20 to 33%. So, and, and they'll have no trouble selling any of those tickets. And I thought that last year people were going to be very reluctant to go back into the stadium. Well, I don't want to be the first one to go back, and I'm not going to be the sacrificial lamb here, but that's not the case at all. People are vaccinated. I think people have a greater understanding of COVID, and they understand social distancing, and I think they'll be, once that those gates are open 100%, I think there'll be a stampede to the seats. Well, I mean, Michael Barr, it, it takes us back to the beginning of this show and the conversation that we had about streaming rights yeah. and just broadcast rights in general, but... Some of them are going streaming. Some of them are going to traditional broadcasts. But the fact is, there's a massive amount of value because these sports are incredibly popular. And I think we're all going to be living in something of a hybrid world. And there's going to be heavy demand for those sports to to attend in person. But there's also going to be heavy demand to watch them on TV. And so the way that they're produced, and that was something that came up in the conversation with Ari as well, things that they learned with the UFC, just about how you put together an increasingly attractive package for the viewer and the fan we'll take the nfl they're going to be broadcasting their thursday games on amazon and if you don't have amazon and you better you better get the app because you're not going to really see the thursday night games i better learn how to use my phone or put it on my television or whatever because that's the way the world is going and and this was something else that, that came up in the conversation that i had with ari was this you know the, this evolution of talent in many ways and also you know sports figures we talk about it ad nauseum on this show you know just being much more vocal about uh, about various things uh out there in the world
So now let's turn to another very timely interview. While Endeavor was going public, folks down in Kentucky, they were getting ready for, yeah, the Kentucky Derby, the first leg of the Triple Crown. They're all in line. We're ready for the start. They're off in the Kentucky Derby. And we love the sound of that bell. No one loves it more than Michael Barr, but Am I, I dreaming? I digress. Today we're delighted to be speaking with Bill Carstangen. He is the CEO of Churchill Downs, of course, home to the Kentucky Derby. Bill, really nice to have you with us. It's obviously a very busy week. Set the scene for us because obviously this has been a crazy year leading up to this for everyone. Uh, everything was different with the calendar last year, but what can we expect? What are you expecting to see uh, this weekend uh, there at Churchill Downs? Well, first, it, it's great to be back doing what we love again. Yeah, last year was a, a disjointed year with COVID, and we ended up running uh, the Derby in September, whereas it's always run the first Saturday in May. So it's good to be back on schedule, and it's good to do it with, with uh, a crowd this year. So uh, because of COVID restrictions, we'll probably top out at around 50,000 spectators, and uh, that number's built with some of our reserve seats, 40 to 60 percent of those, depending on the section and the social distancing within each of those sections, and then some of our general admissions. Um, we worked with the, the state and local authorities to come up with a safety protocol that allowed us to, to build up to a crowd number of that size. So we're excited. It's not the normal derby of 150 to 175,000 people, uh, but it's going to feel great to be out there again. But, Michael Barr, 50,000 people, I mean, that's a lot. That's a pretty good crowd. Yeah. You can get that. Uh, that's way more than what you get at Belmont on right. a regular day. So, you know, that, that's pretty good. And by the way, Bill, I have to add, any horse named Rock Your World has my money. <laughs> oh. and, <laughs> but where is the, the industry today? You, you started to talk about it with, you know, with COVID and how it really impacted the industry. But the industry in general for horse racing, where are we today? Well, it, it can depend on the region of the country that, that you're in, but I'd start by saying um, there's been online wagering on horse racing for quite some time, so that's been a really healthy uh, tailwind for the industry that, that, that's really helped us, and it, and it helped us during COVID. It helped the company, and it helped, uh, helped the industry. So now that we're seeing more sports wagering, uh, I think that's a good thing. It, it introduced our game to even more people. So sports uh, or horse racing is a great sport and it's a great gambling product so there was a time in this country where it had a monopoly it was really the only form of legal gambling and that's of course changed over the last 40 years uh, but today there's a lot of competition but it's still a really really great game so uh, so there's a, an element there's a there's an underbelly of horse racing that's that's really healthy and has an opportunity to grow um, but that doesn't mean every jurisdiction is the same. Horse racing is a very balkanized sport in this country in the sense that every state does it a little bit differently, and every, every state has different wrinkles and a different economic dynamic. But there's, a, there's an undercurrent of several jurisdictions, in, including Kentucky, where the sport's actually really, really strong. Gambling in this establishment? I'm shocked. <laughs> shocked. <laughs> shocked. <laughs> Hey, Bill, this is Mike up in Boston. Uh, following up on that, uh, Michael Barr's favorite pastime, Twinspires.com, the official betting partner of the Kentucky Derby. Tell me a little bit of how, about, how long they've been around and, uh, and how they became your partner when there's a lot of other competition out there for uh, betting with FanDuel, DraftKings, et cetera. Well, Twinspires.com actually uh, 
sort of uh, is tied really closely to my career because I was part of the team that started that business. It's a subsidiary of Churchill Downs. So we started it back in 2007 because there's actually a separate law that governs how horse racing works in this country across state lines, and it's called the Interstate Horse Racing Act. And under that law, there is a there is the ability, as the internet developed, to have online wagering on on horse racing. So we took advantage of that legal construct back in 2007 to start Twin Spires, and it's it's um, I've started several businesses within within larger companies. And that's the one that uh, took off and, and performed uh, beyond our wildest expectations. So it had a great run, a great lead-up, and it, and it had a fantastic 2020. And now we enter into a world where we can do other products besides horse racing, as different states are legalizing other forms of, of online sports wagering. So we're taking that business in that direction as well to, to offer more products uh, over time as different states uh, legalize more products. Well, tell us more about that, Bill, because you know, you've know you hit on something that we talk about a lot uh, on this show. We talk about it in the, in the capital markets. You know, As as so many companies like yours are, are publicly traded, there's a lot of investor interest, a lot of consumer interest. It feels like betting specifically was one of these business for which the pandemic was a real accelerant, both from a consumer uptake perspective, but also from the perspective of states and municipalities looking for new sources of revenue. What did you see from where you sit? Well, I've paid attention to to gambling industries around the world for a long time. So, Every, every jurisdiction that's legalized it over time has done it a little bit differently, and the United States is no exception. So I think it, it, it's been a journey, a, a unique journey, because it's been worked a little bit differently here than the rest of the world. I'd say here, because of the capital markets, because of uh, financing through public companies, et cetera, I think there's been even uh, more bullishness on it mm. and uh, less patience. You know, get in, build the, build the top line as quickly as possible. And for somebody that's been in the gambling industry a long time, I would tell you that uh, gambling's a margin business. It's not a top line business. It's a margin business. Mm. It's, it's not hard to get customers. You can always economically incent them to gamble. It's how do you get a profitable business set up. So I think in the current environment with online wagering, you still see a lot of distortion because there's a lot of uh, uh, acquisition money, customer acquisition money in the market, and there isn't a long history of really understanding the margins, the profit margins, the, the contribution margins of the business. And that's something that will sort out over time. But there's a lot of precedent you can look to to in you know Western Europe, Australia, and other places to try to give you a picture of what you hope this business looks like long term. But here in the United States, we're still in the early innings, and there's still a bit of a frenzy to get states open under any construct and to, to uh, focus on metrics like revenues or, or numbers of customers. And those aren't metrics long term, I think, will truly drive this, right. because eventually, like all industries, people, as they see the industry approach maturity, will want to see profitability. And that's a story that I think we understand, but it's a story that's not been written yet. Right. So I think right now we're still in a period of a, a lot of chaos, um, and that makes it fun. There's always a lot of opportunity in chaos, but you have to be disciplined and careful during chaos, too, especially when you have a lot to protect um, uh, in terms of other gambling businesses, sure. or in the case of ours, Twin Spires, which is an incredibly profitable online uh, business, because horse racing 
betting on horse racing online is an incredibly profitable business. Bill, talk to us a little bit about Louisville and Kentucky and the economic impact of this race, the economic impact of this business, because it's, you know, horses and bourbon, as far as I can tell. I know it's much more diversified than that, but that's what I think about when I think about uh, your great state. But, you know, when it comes to horse racing, this is a massive industry, not just from a tourist perspective, not just from a racing perspective, but but it's really baked into the, the fabric of the economy there. Tell us about that. When you think about the Kentucky Derby in, in Louisville and in this region, not just the state, but this whole surrounding region, it it's really akin to a holiday. I mean, that's the rhythm and the energy that that you feel. It's, it's like Thanksgiving. It's like Christmas. In fact, in Louisville on Friday, the day before the Derby, uh, there's no public school. It, it's canceled. So this very much has a holiday feel, and the rhythm – uh, just like a holiday rhythm, uh, is really what drives the ultimate day and the ultimate event. Uh, it's people planning family reunions. It's when they get back in touch with uh, their college friends or their high school friends or, or friends from their neighborhood. Uh, it has that sort of rhythm to it. And that energy, you know, charitable events, et cetera, and that energy builds over the, over the weeks prior to the Derby. And then Derby Day itself arrives. Everybody puts all that down and focuses on uh, coming to the track or what's on TV. So um, ultimately, that energy belongs to this community. And what we try to do is harness a little piece of it. But we want the community itself to enjoy uh, their own fruits of, of, of that energy. We, we want those charities to thrive. We want those local restaurants to thrive. So when we look at the the economic impact to our region, which can be hard to fully calculate, it's, in, it, it's in, the, in the nature of hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. It fills the hotels, it fills the restaurants, it fills the stores, uh, and that's a great thing to be a part of. Uh, we get our little piece, we're the culmination, uh, but it really feels like something that belongs uh, to everybody. Uh, it's, almost, it's almost sort of a public event as opposed to an event owned by a company. But that's the dynamic in, in this region. And we stand on the shoulders of, of the people that helped develop this, helped drive it to, to the point where it's at now, where it's an institution, it's a holiday, it's, it's something that everybody has circled on their calendar. And they design their whole week or whole couple of weeks around, around that ultimate day. One thing always impressed me, with the Triple Crown, especially the Kentucky Derby, is if a horse wins it and stud fees. So let's say I've got a horse, it's named Fix the Faucet, and it wins the Kentucky Derby. How much could I get in stud fees? Well, um, it's a game of hope. And, uh, <laughs> and the thing Doesn't is... Doesn't Michael Barr know it? You're speaking his language. <laughs> so I was just going to say, in the game of hope... Uh, uh, nothing sells better than hope. So let's let's say you win that Kentucky Derby, and and now now you've got yourself a stallion prospect for the next three years. Nobody's really going to know how good that stallion prospect is because none of the uh, none of its uh, 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 offspring are on the racetrack yet in any material way. So it's not till that first crop really hits their third year, and you start to see if they're. Kentucky Derby contenders or Triple Crown contenders, it's not until then that you really see uh, what you've got. But let's say you've got something. Well, then you've, you've, you've got a stallion that, um, 
uh, that's going to be busy all the time, uh, whether just in the northern hemisphere or maybe they'll go to Australia in in the, uh, in the winter time. So um, uh, for the first three years, it, it's a great start, but you don't really hit that that ultimate sort of legendary stallion uh, status until they can see your offspring on the track and they can see that you're generating lots of winners and thoroughbred racing. The, you know, the, the, the historic rules of thoroughbred racing still apply. There's no artificial insemination. So every mare has to be a live co- uh, cover. There, there isn't artificial insemination like you see in other, uh, you know, other industries, livestock, et cetera. So, um, so that horse, ultimately, if there's demand for uh, that horse, uh, seasons from that horse, as they call it, uh, then it becomes a question of well, how much, uh, how much stamina, how much interest is your horse going to give you uh, to cover those mares? Bill, um, com- coming into the Derby on Saturday, I assume there will be uh, contactless uh, coming in with tickets, and take me all the way to the betting window. Will it apply there, or will cash uh, change hands? Well, we've done the best we could to make uh, uh, to, to limit the number of contact points. So, for example, all the uh, seats this year. Um, have an all-inclusive aspect to it, so it's all all food and beverage included. Because we were trying to keep those lines down, and we were trying to make this as cashless as possible. Uh, uh, and that that starts when you enter the facility um, with your electronic tickets. So uh, we've done the best we've could on that. But if you have cash and you want to go to the betting window, yes, you you can you can bet with cash, and uh, uh, you'll need to wear your mask and our 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 tellers will be wearing their masks, and they'll have plenty of hand sanitizer. Uh, so there's no such thing as perfection in this process, but the windows are still going to be open, and uh, they're still going to process your bets with, with cash. Do you get the sense from the folks that you talk to in the business and the folks that you talk to around the industry that this is the last abnormal uh, derby and that going forward you know, you feel confident about life returning to some sense of normalcy? I do feel this is the last abnormal derby. I really do. I think this state in particular has done a really good job with rolling out the vaccines. And I, I think when you plan for the derby, it's important to understand that this thing's a big aircraft carrier, and yeah. you can't just yank that wheel at the last second. A lot of the decisions we've made about how this derby is being conducted this coming Saturday really were made months ago because we're training our team, we're setting up the, the ticketing system, we're ordering the food and beverage, we're hiring a certain number of people. You know, all of these things get done in advance, and they get executed carefully, and you can't change it in the middle of execution. So I think... Um, I, and I can tend to be an optimistic person, but I think as we head into 2022, I think we're looking at a much more typical derby. And I think the demand for an event like this for, for the tickets, I think it's going to be there. And if we're, we've got a lot of disappointed people this year who would like to come, but they were, um, were, were limited in terms of how many people can come. And, and we made our decisions with respect to that months ago. Yeah. Um, so I, based on, the demand that's out there and what I read across you know, uh, the vaccine rollouts across the country, I feel like we're in pretty good shape for 2022. Um, and I think it'll be something that's uh, abnormal, you know, defining normal as right. what we saw 2019 and before that are so very close to it that, uh, that, that uh, it's still a really wonderful thing. 
Let me ask one question, and let's go back to the mint juleps, because what that means is now that you have fans in the stands, that means all of the people who are selling concessions and drinks can now make money for a change. Right. Have you talked to the people in the concession arena about the hits that they have taken from this COVID, and can you expand on that? Yeah, absolutely. I so I've been on the back side of the racetrack, as they they call it. The, you know, you have the front side where the where the crowd is, and then on the other side of the track, that's where the horses live. And it's really a, a city and a community of it in and of itself, all oriented around taking care of these horses. So I can tell you that I've never felt such a sense of optimism and confidence. And I think that's an important thing about the success of any industry or or of any city. It's, it's confidence to to build a business, to, to take chances, and that's returning. I mean, what happened in this community over the, the last year is a microcosm of what happened across the country and across the world. These local businesses were so so hit, so devastated uh, by COVID, the, the restaurants, the concessionaires, every kind of business, and that, that flowed right into horse racing as well. So people really, really took a hit. And it's only now that they're starting to feel confident again. And the Derby's a big part of that. Seeing that uh, we're taking a step forward, that we're going to hold an event with something approaching 50,000 people, and that we're going to sell mint juleps, that we're going to serve food, that people are going to be together again, and that we're going to start to get back to normal, I think it's been a real catalyst in our community and in our industry that, that there are better days ahead. So I, I'd have to say it's... Uh, while we still have reduced crowds in the morning on the backside, I've never felt the sense of uh, optimism and confidence that, that we're seeing back there today. So, Bill, how long will it take Churchill Downs to recover from what they lost in 2020? Well, as a, as a company, we're in the gambling business, and, and that ex- extends to online and extends to casinos. So our first quarter numbers our EBITDA was up 50% over 2019. So as a company, we've already recovered uh, because we were growing so rapidly anyway across all our properties. When it comes to the Derby, we took a really big hit last year, and I think because we had to hold it without a crowd in September. I think this year, um, a lot of our metrics are returning. I think the wagering will be tremendous. I think it'll be really strong. I love this card. I love the field in the Derby itself. I think this is going to be a great betting race, and I think that's going to be evident at the windows. A full recovery of of the economics of the Kentucky Derby, that can't quite happen until we can sell the tickets again, you know, sell the place out again. Uh, so I hope that that's next year. But as a company overall, because the rest of our businesses are doing so well already, uh, we're looking pretty good. Bill Karstangen, CEO of Churchill Downs. Oh, thank you so much for talking with us because I get excited every time I think of the Kentucky Derby. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks for having me on. Happy Derby. So, guys, really interesting conversation there with Bill Karstangen. Enjoyed getting some time with him ahead of the big race this weekend. Uh, I was saying to you guys off air, he's a he's a gambling guy. I, I, I found that very interesting that – and you know, a man after your own heart, Michael Barr. But that is the business of horse racing. I was saying, I knew I felt a kindred spirit <laughs> when I was talking to him. He he is he is really a a, a hands on guy, 
and, and this is his business about the gambling part of it, uh, and also along with the the studs, the stud fees. Yeah. We were talking about that. Is like fix the faucet might have a shot yeah. of of getting a, if it, any horse that wins the Kentucky Derby has a shot at making the owner wealthy for the rest of their lives if they're good at making good baby horses yeah. i mean but th- there is some some contingency on that which uh i thought was interesting that that he pointed out lynchy what what did you think because you know this is one of the i mean you know the history of sports as well as anyone this is literally one of the most storied uh, venues but also one of these you know mark your calendar type of type of races yep. but a massive business you know, and I, I thought that it was interesting when he said the Kentucky Derby every year is like a holiday. Yeah. No public school on Friday, the day before the Derby. And it, people treat it like we treat up here in New England Thanksgiving, where it's yeah. basically people plan reunions, people come back home to their high school friends, their college friends, their neighborhood friends, and it all builds up, and the culmination is, you know, what call to the post on Saturday Derby time. I mean, there's nothing like it. The Twin Spires, 147 years of tradition, unmatched and unequaled in sport. What I thought you were going to say when you started that was it's like Patriots Day. <laughs> it feels a little bit like <laughs> that um, yep. in, in some ways. Yeah, I mean, listen, the history of it and the sheer economic impact, he said, you know, in a typical year, hundreds of millions of dollars coming into Louisville and, and the surrounding areas. Obviously, there's so much infrastructure that's built around that. 50,000 people will be in the stands, which sounds like a lot, but it's only only a third of of normal capacity, uh, but you know he like a lot of people definitely looking ahead to to twenty twenty two when you know probably all those folks will be on the infield and uh, drinking mint juleps. I will say I I think I mentioned this to you guys offline as well. One thing that that uh, has put me in the mood for the Kentucky Derby. There's a fantastic. 30 for 30 short called Gonzo at the Derby, which I'm guessing the folks at Churchill Downs wouldn't necessarily fully endorse, but it's about the famous Hunter Thompson visit uh, to the Kentucky Derby uh, back in the day and the, and the famous story he wrote about that. It's a very, very, uh, it's a terrific short doc directed by uh, by Michael Ratner. Uh, so check that out if you want to get in the in the Derby mood. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row good numbers at a good time when i first started wearing that number i was just happy and proud bloomberg business of sports the number of the week time for the number of the week this one might be simple guys no famous last words (laughs) according to tal jones while some clients may want to invest in bitcoin kansas city chiefs tight end sean culkin is taking it a step further he decided to convert his entire base salary into the cryptocurrency what I want to know is, what is his entire base salary? Base salary, I'll go with a nice round million bucks. I'm going to uh, play uh, the prices right here, and I'm going to go, I'm going to undercut you, Jason, mm. uh, and I'm going to go 900000 How in the world does he do it? I know. $920,000. How do you do it, man? How? 
How? Well done. If well he, done. If he if, if if he said two million, I would have gotten one point nine. How do you? Do, we need to, the three of us need to go to Churchill Downs. Yeah. All right, Lindsay, you just take the money and yeah. bet on something, yeah. man. Bet, go on ahead. Some, bet on some, you know, smart horse. Yeah, bet bet uh, on okay. soup and sandwich. That's yeah. that's one of the I'm horses. Going hot Rod Charlie. Yeah. Hot Rod Charlie <laughs> has hot no wing Exactly. That's the one that's owned by the guys from Brown. I'm definitely I'm pulling for them. I don't know if I'll actually actually known. Uh, known to insiders as simply as Chuck. Chuck. There you go. There you go. <laughs> this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports Show. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online, wherever you get your podcast. You can catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. And I'm really not that smart. Jason made the mistake of going first, and I just undercut him. I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me at LynchyWCBB. And I'm Jason Kelly, always the number of the week, Patsy. You can follow me on Twitter. <laughs> At Jason Kelly News. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you're listening to Bloomberg Business with Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world.